Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where we are reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. This month, we are taking a look at the sort of sociopath that is drawn to socialism, making this week's book of the week Beria, Stalin's First Lieutenant by Amy Knight. The accompanying cocktail is called Glasnost. I uh, picked it based on the Russian policy of Glasnost or open consultative government and wider dissemination of information, um, which basically freed up, a, freed up all of the information that made this book possible. Uh, this book was written literally right after the, the USSR dissolved and I think Amy Knight was the first one in there to get access to this information. And so Glasnost is the cocktail. It is a very easy two ounces of vodka and a half ounce of peppermint schnapps. Easy peasy. Let's do this. So Lavrenti Pavlovich Beria was born on March 29th, 1899 in Markuli Sukumi district of Georgia. I'm going to mispronounce a whole bunch of things here and I'm very sorry about that to the people of Georgia and Russia because Beria was definitely not your fault. You guys were victims of his, but I say two ounces, two ounces. He was a member of the, um, oh, Georgia, the country, not the state. I know there are actually people who are not aware that there is a country called Georgia, but there is, and that is where Beria and Stalin, for that matter, were both born. He was a member of the Mangrelian ethnic group, which was predominantly the peasant class. So they, they had a lot to gain by this, Bolshevik Revolution and the overthrow of the Tsar and the, the rising up of the people, if you will. And, and I get it, right? I mean, being from that poor peasant class, this would be very attractive to them. And he sort of struggled with his Mangrelian ethnic accent his whole life. Uh, being from Georgia, this was that shared heritage with, with uh, Joseph Stalin. By October of 1915, so he was 16 years old, he had discovered Marxism, and March of 1917, Beria joined the Bolsheviks and was an active member of the revolution in Georgia. He didn't make it to Moscow until quite a bit later in life, like the 30s or 40s, I think, is when he was transferred to Moscow. Easy cocktail. It's mostly vodka with a little bit of schnapps for flavor. Now, by the time uh, by 1919, so when he was just 20 years old, uh, he was put in charge of counter, or not in charge of, but he was part of conducting counterintelligence operations against the Musavat government, which was at that time in charge of Georgia, uh, basically the opposition to the Bolsheviks. And that kind of came back and bit him in the butt later because basically all throughout his life there were allegations that he had in fact been spying for the Musavat rather than against them. And that came back to haunt him multiple times in his life. And basically that kind of set the tone for his whole life, that sort of spy versus spy, and he spent the rest of his life more or less in charge of hunting out enemies of the state, whoever they may be. Usually the people that Stalin just didn't like, or Beria himself just didn't like. There were not a few people who Beria managed to oust based solely on, I don't like that guy, let's get rid of him. Um... By 1920, Beria was assigned to work as the deputy chairman of the military tribunal of the 11th Army, and that's kind of where he began to pick up the punitive measurements that he would use to great effect throughout his career. Uh, and it was during this time that he met uh, M.D. Bagarov. Bagarov became his lifelong friend and compatriot. They, they basically were in tandem with each other 
all the way up until the very bitter end. And like right when Beria was arrested, Bagarov started distancing himself. Like, whoa, hey, no, I, I was never that close with that guy, even though everybody's like, you were totally butt buddies. I don't know if they were butt buddies, but yeah, nobody fell for Bagarov's line. They're like, no, you were part of his parties, and Bagarov was also eventually executed. So it was during the 1920s that Beria really got his start as kind of the master of torture that he would become, and, and that's the legacy that he became known for. Now, surprisingly enough, this book is not about that, which I'm a little disappointed in, I, to be honest. I mean, I thought I was going to get a whole lot of the dirty details of what Beria did, and this was more of a straight biography. Like, if you want the details of what he got up to, you really should read the Gulag Archipelago, because he's, he's mentioned extensively throughout the Gulag Archipelago. Um, Solzhenitsyn got up close and personal treatment from Lavrenti Beria. In 1921, he married Nino Gegechkori, and they had a son together, Sergo, who was born in 1924. And by 1926, Beria was made chairman of the Georgian GPU, so he was 27 at the time, uh, which is the state political director. Basically, he was in charge of the Socialist Party in Georgia. Now it's peppermint vodka. You know what, it's fine because it's really hot in here right now and um, I can't really turn the fan on because it's very loud, so this will help cool me off. So he, he was in charge of the Socialist Party in Georgia and the Socialist Party was in charge of the state, effectively. Um, they're the ones who determined policy and the state enacted it. And he just keeps moving up these party ranks. He's taking charge of progressively bigger projects, ultimately being in charge of the party purges in Georgia, which basically just meant anybody he didn't like was ousted. Um, it was kind of during this time that, that allegations were made against him that he was freeing people who were very clearly guilty of things while jailing others, and that um, was basically par for the course for the socialists. They, they didn't care if you were actually guilty, they cared about what could you do for them and the party. And more often than not, the profoundly innocent were in fact sent to the gulags as a result of this policy, because that's what socialism does. Get my digs in there now. Now, ultimately, when he was, did make it to Moscow, he was put in charge of Lubyanka prison. And that, of course, was the prison intake for the Gulag Archipelago. That is where Alexander Solzhenitsyn got all of his contact with Beria, was at Lubyanka prison. Throughout all of this, Beria starts getting this reputation as a vigorous rapist. And this reputation would be well known throughout his life. I mean, no one objected to this. And I, I don't mean his victims. I'm sure his victims had plenty to object to. I'm talking about the party and Stalin were a-okay with his policy of rape because it got results, right? I mean, hey, confess your sins or we'll rape you. Confess your sins, they're going to rape you anyways. Um, and if it's the men they need to confess their sins, they bring in the men and the man's wife or daughter or sister and says, hey, confess your sins or I'm going to rape your wife, daughter, sister, whoever it is. And that got results. Men were surprisingly willing to talk to save the, the women they loved this torture. Um, the women would then be raped anyways because it's not like there's any honor amongst thieves. So he got a reputation as being a vigorous rapist. And this was a policy that he encouraged. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a policy he encouraged among his followers was yes, go ahead and rape all you like. It gets results. Let's do this. So the nice guy. It's mentioned multiple times throughout the book that he was a, that he was a rapist, but it, it was documented more thoroughly in both the Gulag Archipelago and in The White Pill by Michael Malice. 
So I highly recommend both of those journeys into hell if you want to know more about Barry's activities. Like I said, this is more of a straight up biography. So if you want to know more about what exactly Barry did, those two sources are going to be better than this book. This book was good on its own, but it, it's not going to document his evil deeds the way that those two books did. And at one point, the author does posit that maybe Stalin was not at first aware of Beria's reputation as a rapist, or it might not have sanctioned it. And I think she was basing it off of it's this photo. Let's move my hand over here. This photo, I'm going to put it up right around here somewhere, where you have um, that. That's Stalin's daughter, who was uh, Svetlana Alyova. I'm probably mispronouncing that. You got Stalin in the background, and then Svetlana is sitting on Beria's lap. And it's kind of, and I think her thought was, if Stalin knew about Beria's reputation, why would he let Beria hold his daughter like that? And I mean, well, first off, Stalin's literally sitting right there, right? He's in the background. It's not like his daughter is being left alone with Beria. So Beria is probably not going to go through a. He's not going to like throw down a seven-year-old child on the ground, with a literal head of the Socialist Party, who will just put a bullet in him right then, sitting right there. But. We learn in the White Pill that uh, Stalin also warned his adult daughter to never be alone with Beria. So Stalin knew. Uh, I, to be fair, like I said, this book was written right after the Soviet Union dissolved, and Michael Malice's book was written 30 years later, so he's got access to quite a bit more documentation and resources than Amy Knight did. But still, Stalin definitely knew. Um, most likely, it was just simply understood that Stalin would only play his games with inmates and quote-unquote enemies of the state. Uh, but I mean, also look at this picture. I mean, Svetlana is not comfortable. I mean, her arms are like braced. She's pushing to get away. And that look on her face, like, fucking haunting, man. This guy was a sicko. So after more purges and being in charge of Lupyanka prison, Barry was put in charge of the NKVD, which was the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs. Uh, right at the start of World War II. And he would hold that position through throughout the war. So he held that position for six years, seven years. He held it until 1946. So World War II started in 1939 when, you know, Germany rolled tanks across Polish borders. And he held that for seven years. And he tried to use that very hard. He tried to make the NKVD into his own personal police force. Uh, he tried to accommodate weaponry that would only be used by the NKVD. And... So Stalin put the kibosh on that, would not let him just, you know, commandeer all of the weapons for the NKVD. Stalin's like, no, at some point we really need weapons on the front line to stop the Germans. But what Beria did do is he put into effect a policy that said any, you know, Soviet men who were captured by the Germans would then be sent to the gulags when they got back because they must not have fought hard enough if they were captured by the Germans. Socialist logic right there. He was put in charge of the Soviet Atomic Project during the war, so right after, actually right after the war technically, since the, you know, they were aware that America was, was toying with, with the Atomic Project, but they didn't, of course, have direct access to it, despite, you know, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Were they accused of the Atomic Ones? I think they were accused of the Atomic Secrets. Anyways, they didn't actually have direct knowledge of or proof of the project, but of course they knew right after Hiroshima and he was put in charge of uh, Russia's nuclear program at that point. I think he was in charge of that up until he died, actually. And uh, during after the war, he was granted full Politburo membership and was awarded the Order of Lenin. So at that point, he is in tight with Stalin. He is Stalin's good friend, um, a s presumed 
heir apparent, although Stalin never actually named any heir apparents. Stalin was just paranoid. He was paranoid about being overthrown before his time, and he never named any heir apparents. He, he, he kept his inner circle, but he kept them at each other's throats. Beria was instrumental in sending millions to the gulags and across all Soviet states, not just in Russia, but in Georgia and the, all the satellite states. He enhanced his policy of you know, forced confession, false confessions. This was his policy to make it look like he was really doing his job. Or maybe just because he was a psychotic, twisted fuck. I don't know. In addition to being a sadist, he was he was a skilled game master in the political arena. Uh, he built up his own reputation in Stalin's eyes and worked his way up to third in the country behind Stalin and Molotov. Uh, uh, Vyacheslav Mikhailovich Molotov. He was the guy who engineered the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939. That was the Russian-German treaty that split Poland between the two. Uh, Beria had a lot to make up for with that treaty because he fully endorsed it, fully supported it, said, yes, this is going to make sure that Germany doesn't attack us. And then, of course, when Germany attacked, he and Molotov were both scrambling to cover their own butts and make sure that they didn't end up in the gulag for having endorsed this policy. Um, because, of course, you are... There's just, 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 everybody's your enemy when in, in a socialist state because you don't know who you can trust. There is no such thing as loyalty to others, except for maybe Bagalov. But even then, you saw that, you know, I said that Bagalov turned against him at the end. And so he became Stalin's confidant by feeding Stalin's insecurities. And he recognized in Stalin somebody who was profoundly paranoid, and he fed that paranoia playing this game masterfully, that kind of always positioning himself as next to the master, always whispering in Stalin's ear about the enemies of the state and the people who are coming to get him. And some part of Stalin recognized Beria as a snake in the grass because he did in fact refuse to name him as a successor. Um, I mean, it, not just Beria, he wouldn't name anybody, but he, he was quite concerned that if he named a successor, he would be assassinated shortly thereafter by said successor. And um, so he never did. And he just kept all the different factions at each other's throat. So I mean, Stalin truly was the master, but Beria was quite close, which is why we in the West assume that he was the heir apparent to the throne. And when it all blew up, it went downhill fast. March 5th, 1953, Stalin dies. Uh, he, he had suffered, a, I believe, a stroke a few years previously, and it seemed to come back and reafflict him. And, and he essentially, we, they think that he had a stroke in his chambers, and because it was Stalin, nobody wanted to interrupt him and risk being wrong that he was okay. Because if, if, if they interrupted him and he was, in fact, okay, they would probably be sent to the gulags because that's what Stalin was like. And so when he had his, his stroke or fit or whatever it is that actually took him down, he laid for several hours with people going, should we check him? I don't know, you check him. I don't want to check on him. You do that. And they basically argued back and forth for several hours while Stalin just slowly, like, you know, died, which, I mean, I guess that it would have been better if he had gotten a bullet, but this is kind of justice too, where people are so scared to check on him that he just dies unaided. I guess that's kind of fitting too. So that's March 5th, 1953. No one believed that Barry was actually grieving over this. In fact, Svetlana said that she thought she saw him smiling over Stalin's casket. Um, regardless, Beria moved in fast and tried to liberalize 
and roll back some of Stalin's more draconian policies. I mean, policies that Beria had, in fact, been enforcing as recently as six months prior to, St to Stalin's death. He was trying to roll him back. Those same policies, incidentally, that Khrushchev himself would later roll back. So Beria started it, and, and he gained widespread popular support for this uh, with the people. Uh, what he did not have the support of was the Politburo and other political leaders. And so at the time of Stalin's death, I mean, you had Molotov. He was still nominally second in charge, but he was effectively retired. He, he was just a, a political figurehead and had no real power. And he was happy with that. He was cool with just being this figurehead and resting on his laurels. So you had Beria and his team on one side and Khrushchev on his, his team on the other. And the two of them kind of start circling around each other, trying to figure out who's going to make the first move, who's going to take the other out. And Beria's thought, I think, was to rush to the front, roll back these policies, gain popular support, let the nation see him as the leader, and it would become so. While Khrushchev starts maneuvering behind the lines, got everybody on his side and said, hey, you know, remember when Beria had your you know, son put in a gulag? Well, what do you think about that? Remember when Beria raped your sister? What do you think about that? And started getting everybody to work with him and took Beria out on, I believe it was June 25th, or June 25th, 1953. So three months and 20 days after Stalin's death, Beria is placed under arrest. And then depending on which story you believe, he may actually have been executed at that time because he was never seen again. Like literally nobody saw Beria after June 25th, 1953. Now ultimately he went before a trial uh, in December of 1953, and it, but it was an in-camera, meaning it was behind closed doors. So some records indicate Beria may have been there, but the author points out, and makes a pretty convincing argument, that the policy that he was prosecuted under actually did not allow for the defense to be present at the time of trial. It was literally prohibited by that policy. So she doesn't actually say if she thinks he was executed in June or December. Regardless, he was 100% dead by December 23rd, 1953, because that's when his trial ended. He was found guilty and executed the same day. Um, Russians are extremely efficient when they declare somebody, you know, death worthy. <laughs> they just, there, there's none of this, you know, six to 12 years of appeals before they gently put you to sleep. They just, you know, take you into a room with a drain in it for easy cleaning and put a bullet in the back of your head. And that's basically what they did to Beria, whether they did it on June 25th or December 23rd. He was dead in nine months after Stalin's death. So like I said, this book was not quite what I was expecting. I, I was expecting more of this is the actual policy and he implemented this and it's hinted at, but not specifically, not, not like explicitly stated. And I if I had to guess, I would say it's because so much of that is covered in detail in the Gulag Archipelago. This was just a straight biography of Beria, like straight up. I, I was expecting this like depressing foray into hell and I, it just covered, you know, he was born here. This was the trajectory of his life. This is how he ended up being Stalin's right wing man, right hand man, right hand man, I guess right hand man. It does cover essentially that he was a sadist and that that sadism brought him high favor with Stalin. I mean, Stalin had no objections to his sadism in any way, shape, or form. Um, it doesn't mention whether or not she thinks he was a sociopath, a psychopath, or just an evil man. Um, and that's fair. I mean, she, she's not a doctor. I think she's a historian. 
but she, she does a pretty credible job rebuilding his life. Like, if you want to know just a straight-up biography, if you're less worried about about what he did than when he served in any one particular function throughout his career, this is a decent straight-up biography. But if you're looking for, like, a murder horror story shit show, this is this is not going to be that book. I mean, other than the multiple mentions of him being a vigorous rapist, oh, and, and apparently contracting syphilis, which would not be surprising... Um, it, it just doesn't cover that. Uh, if you know, want to know what Beria did, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Michael Malice, I haven't read it yet, but Eleanor Lipper was an English woman who was imprisoned in the Gulag system, and when she was either she either escaped or was released, but she wrote about her experiences uh, in a book called Eleven Years in Soviet Prison Camps. And she also details quite a bit of Beria's uh, evil doing during that time. So if you want to know what he did find other resources if you want to know about the man himself this is a good book for that that's it that's that's this book lays out how a sociopath i'm i'm calling him a sociopath climbs his way to the top and uh, socialism makes it very easy because socialism kills your conscience and uh that's it for this week next week we're going to check out mao's number two man kang shang i i already started that and on like page three, the author notes that he was compared to Laurenti Beria and found it very flattering that he was compared to Laurenti Beria. So that that says something about Kang himself. I'm we'll see how that goes. I'll see you guys next Sunday. Bye.